Welcome to Trauma-Informed Parenting, where you can find information about adoption, foster care, parenting a child with a capital letter syndrome, such as ADD, ADHD, FASD, SPD, on the spectrum, etc., and trauma-informed parenting, all in one place. I'm Kathleen Guire, your host, mother of seven, four through adoption, former National Parent of the Year, author, teacher, and speaker, but more important than any of those things, I'm a parent just like you. I know what it's like to raise kiddos with trauma histories and capital letter syndromes. I used to feel as if I were the only one struggling, and because I felt that way, I isolated myself. I don't want you to feel alone in your parenting journey. So grab a cup of coffee and join me for Trauma-Informed Parenting, a Coffee Break Podcast. Hi, Kathleen Guire here. Welcome to this episode of Trauma-Informed Parenting. We have Dr. Jared Brown back today. Welcome, Dr. Jared. Thank you, Kathleen, and I hope you're doing well. I hope your audience is doing well, and honored to be back here to talk with you about this really important topic. Yes, Dr. Jared is going to talk about attachment-based traumas and the causes, consequences, and solutions. And I've already told him several times, I am really excited to hear him talk about this because I think this is super important. Everything he talks about is super important. But I just, I love to study attachment myself. I've done a lot of study, so... I have my paper ready. I have my pen ready. I am ready to take notes, so I will let you take over, Dr. Jared. You bet. We'll just jump right into it. So I do a lot of work in the area of attachment. I've done a lot of trainings on topics related to this. and I mean, there's literally been thousands of studies and countless books written on the topic of attachment theory. So if you work with kids, if you work with adults, whatever job you're in, it doesn't matter. If you can learn about attachment, you're going to be in a much better position as a parent, a coworker, a friend, a neighbor. Attachment's a big thing. We got many dimensions of attachment. So we have secure attachment patterns. That's when mm. things are typically going well, and we've probably had a stable upbringing. Unfortunately, many, many people have not, and they may develop problematic attachment patterns. Maybe they have anxious attachment patterns. Maybe they have avoidant attachment tendencies. Depending on what study you look at, there's all kinds of different categories of attachment. So when you think of secure attachment, it's more positive mm-hmm. and more of a positive outlook on themselves and others. Sometimes in the attachment literature, they may talk about like a fearful attachment style where that's typically they're going to have negative opinions about themselves, but also negative opinions about others. There's also a dismissing type of attachment style where if someone has true dismissing attachment, they're typically going to have more negative views about others but have a positive view about themselves. So that's where it's different from Hmm. some of these other ones. And then sometimes in this literature, they talk about preoccupied attachment styles. That's flipping dismissing on its side. Preoccupied attachment styles, they're going to typically have positive 
regards about other people, but negative about themselves. So this doesn't all fit into a nice box. Some people can have many overlaps with this, but if somebody has true secure attachment patterns, and I do not, most people in this society, I think they have some attachment problems, just mm. all the things we deal with, in my opinion. But, right. but if someone had true secure attachment patterns, typically they're going to be more comfortable being alone. They're, they're, they're not going to be overly enmeshed with people. They're okay being by themselves. I'm not saying like they're by themselves all the time by any stretch, but they typically have better like self-efficacy, better internal locus of control. They seem to have improved independence. They have better boundaries with people. They seem to trust others more effectively. Secure attached people typically have a better sense of self, higher self-esteem, better coping skills, better resilience, and they can handle their emotions and their mood swings much more effectively. So secure attachment is really rooted in having better stress management skills. There's a link between having secure attachment and having better school performance. Mm -hmm. And having secure attachment patterns early on in life and forming them are really building blocks for having empathy as well later on in life. So that's a broad spectrum overview about just basic attachment patterns and secure. Before I move into kind of the, the negatives of all of this, before we move back into positives, Kathleen, do you have any thoughts, questions? Well, I just have one question about secure because one of the things that I was taught in my trauma-informed training is that um, obviously what you were saying, we can have a mix of the attachment styles. We know that. But you can also go from disorganized attachment or ambivalent or you know dismissive, all of those other things, and earn secure attachment. Is that correct? Well, like over time, you're saying? Basically? Yes, over time, over a long period of time, obviously, not immediately. Yeah, well, I think there lots of repair work can be done and things can get better and better mm -hmm. over time. Everyone is so different. So let's say we're talking about prenatal drug and alcohol exposure. Mm -hmm. And the child then is born into a home environment where there's a lot of abuse and chaos on top of that. Right. Repairing that attachment to be like 100% solid and secure is probably going to be very difficult for a couple reasons because prenatal trauma, depending on the level of drug or alcohol exposure, can actually damage parts of the brain mm -hmm. that have really play a, a critical role in attachment. So at the neurochemical and neurostructural level, they could actually have changes to their brain chemistry such as like oxytocin, things of that nature that are related to like the bonding chemical, the love hormone. It's more tricky when you have a lot of in utero trauma and then on top of that early childhood trauma, but it can get better, no doubt about it. Can it be cured? Just being realistic, I don't know. It's just so many factors to take into account. And we can talk about some of those factors. Genetics can play into this. Mm -hmm. Are they around animals growing up? Are they in a home where it's a single parent or are they in a home where there's two parents? Are they in a home with no single, no other like children? So many variables to consider. What's the friendship network like? Have they had a mentor going through life or were they always isolated and alone? And 
did they deal with a lot of bullying and teasing and rejection from other people outside the family? These are all some of the variables we'll, we'll definitely talk about today. Okay. Well, that, that answers my question. And I 100% agree with you. And I think that also just from a parent's standpoint who has children who have exactly what you were talking about before they were adopted, I had to change my expectation of the way that my children would attach to me because of the brain being damaged in utero. So I just think that I just want our listeners to to know that, you know, that you need to lower the bar maybe with your expectations instead of expecting, like you were saying, you know, is it going to be 100% secure, like right away? No. Is it ever going to be exactly 100% secure? Probably not. So if we change our expectations, it makes it easier for our children to attach to us at the level that they are able to. Absolutely. But there are, there's always things we can do to make it better. Yes. And we'll leave, we'll leave definitely folks with lots of hope and lots of tips and different things to think about through this attachment lens. There are all kinds of things that can cause attachment problems. And some of the bigger ones is going to be like a child growing up in a home with a very unpredictable caregiver. Mm. So maybe a caregiver is on it one minute and the next minute they're just screaming and yelling and frightening to that child or the caregiver's there one day and they leave the next day and they're gone for 24 hours and the kids have no idea where that parent is. That is crazy making. It is traumatic. It is frightening. All of these things can cause attachment issues. Abuse early on in life is a huge factor. Maybe mm. there was no abuse, but there's abandonment. Mm. A child thrusted into the foster care system, more times than not, will probably have some attachment problems. And it really depends on what kind of foster care placement they're in. I mean, there's good and there's sometimes not so good, depending on a host of factors. Extreme poverty has been linked to having more attachment problems. So a child grows up in poverty or homelessness, Mm -hmm. that's been talked about in this literature. Medical-based trauma. So maybe that child had pretty secure parents, but this child maybe had a lot of disabilities and they're in and out of the hospital and lots of surgeries and Mm -hmm. all kinds of things like that. That could be a factor as well that could contribute to some issues. Pre-birth things, so drugs, alcohol, but also any kind of other traumas. Just maybe there was a very traumatic birth experience and lots of things like that to consider. In this literature, too, they talk about attachment-based traumas in utero. So mom's pregnant. Was it an unplanned pregnancy? Was it a result of a sexual assault? Mm -hmm. Is she using drugs or alcohol? Is she in a domestic violence situation during pregnancy or going through some sort of high-conflict divorce situation or dealing with tons of grief and loss or has a bunch of health problems herself? And maybe she's witnessing tons of violence in the community or has a lot of maternal guilt or shame. Those are some things that can actually cause attachment-based issues in utero, this literature Mm -hmm. talks about. So really fascinating because attachment begins at conception, in my opinion, and 
obviously after the child's born, it continues to accelerate at that point, but really understanding attachment-based kind of pregnancy practices could be very helpful as well. As the child then is born, are they born into an environment again where there's maybe neglect, abuse? Mm. Are they born and now they're placed in some sort of institutionalized based setting? Or maybe they're born into the family environment, but that family may be dealing with a lot of issues. Could be mental health, it could be financial, it could be substance use, and they're constantly moving from apartment to apartment, from placement to placement, from house to house, and that child never secures roots in one place. Even frequent placement moves, in some cases, have been linked to having more problems in this area. So it really depends on a host of factors. It's not just you can say the child moved 20 times between the age of zero to 10. Mm-hmm. They're going to have attachment problems. By no means am I saying that, but it really depends on how involved the parents are. Is there a lot of protection? Is there a lot of safety? These kind of things need to be taken into account. At the extreme end, I'm sure your audience is probably familiar with like reactive attachment disorder mm-hmm. and disinhibited social engagement disorder. Those are kind of the most extreme ends of the attachment-based spectrum. So attach, most people with attachment problems are not going to be diagnosed with reactive attachment or disinhibited social engagement disorder, but, but some maybe will. And then when we think about what can happen as that child gets older and if they deal with attachment problems and these issues go unaddressed, unchecked, or unmanaged, there's an increased likelihood that that person may start engaging in like maladaptive coping patterns where they Mm. may have a low frustration tolerance. They seem to maybe deal with higher levels of irritability Maybe they have a lot of uncertainty about themselves and the world around them. And there is some evidence to support the fact, too, that these profound attachment issues sometimes could place that person at greater risk to start to experiment with drugs and alcohol, tobacco products, earlier initiation with sexual intercourse, coming into contact with the criminal justice system in some cases as well. Mm -hmm. And at the biomedical, biochemical level as well, this is really interesting. There's some studies that have shown that insecure attachment patterns may actually cause more inflammation in the body as well. The reason for that is is because insecure attachment patterns are a risk for more depression, more loneliness, having more problematic social relationships. Maybe it can increase their isolation and increase their stress. All of those things can start wreaking havoc on the body, Mm -hmm. the gut, our sleep, our inflammation. And in some cases, that could trickle down into having just more physical, cognitive, learning, and emotional challenges, just to name a few. Right. And I've heard that one about the inflammation. And of course, you know, we all know the book, The Body Keeps Score. And the body does keep score on things like that. And I just want to put this in like our current world situation. I think I see a lot more of this attachment, all of these things that you're describing, these issues with kids more 
than pre-pandemic. Even I kids, hear it all the time. yeah, even kids who were in a very secure environment, a traditional parent at home, and both parents at home, they're still struggling with these. And I was writing down some of these things, like the low frustration tolerance. See that a lot. Uncertainty, see that a lot. Kids are just, you know, they're freaked out about everything. And every little thing that they hear freaks them out. Um, Kids getting into drugs and alcohol even earlier than they used to. Just some things that I've, I've heard a lot about and seen. And also very young children getting violent. You know, maybe they couldn't hurt you because they're four or five, but they're, they're, you know, I'm hearing of these kids just like they can't regulate at all. And I see so much more of this than I used to see, honestly. And I don't need, want to be a negative Nelly because like you said, you know, we want to, we want to give hope. There are things that you can do. But how do parents address that now? Like these kids already have all this fear and they're already dysregulated and they're showing these signs of attachment disorders. I know. Yeah, it, it, I've seen it so many times. And if you're working with a child with special needs, it's just amplifying more yes. and more. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I do think the media, social media, the Internet does not help the situation. So a lot of... A lot of the cases I consulted on in the last few years, if the person's had a neurodevelopmental disorder, they seem to have a eye dependence of being on the internet. Mm. So take that into account as well. But what can we do about it? I mean, really promote attachment security. If we can do that early on in life, it's been linked to greater levels of resilience. It can help improve social skills, social competence. So. If you have a child that has some social skill limitations, look at their attachment patterns as well. I don't think mm. we can go wrong infusing attachment-based work into social skills work as well because attachment security has been linked to having better empathy. Mm-hmm. It's been linked to improved problem-solving, improved communication and language capabilities for young kids. They might be able to play more effectively with other kids and play with toys and engage in symbolic play and make believe all of these things are really important for brain development. Mm -hmm. And as that person gets older, if you can infuse positive attachment patterns into them, they're in a better position to regulate their mood, to deal with their stress, and to be more mindful of just themselves and those around them from a parenting lens if we look at this through an attachment-based parenting lens really focusing on positive family experiences what would that look like a lot of it's common sense obviously rooted in love rooted in support and loyalty making that child feel known and valued and heard and important Mm -hmm. Parents being attuned and being attentive and responsive to that child's needs. And part of that is really practicing sensitive parental caregiving practices. Parents who are more sensitive, they're going to be using more warm patterns of behavior that are really rooted in healthy attachment. They're not going to come off as very critical. 
or shaming. They're going to just be like kind and calm and patient and curious and approachable. I believe in some of our other talks, we talked a little bit about like reflective functioning and parental responsivity and mentalization. Those mm-hmm. would be some terms to be aware of. When we talk about like parental responsivity, that's a positive parenting interaction style where that parent is going to be more nurturing. They're going to be stable. They're going to be dependable. They're going to be more predictable. They're going to engage in active listening and they're going to be emotionally present. Give you an example. A parent who's not emotionally present, but maybe they're feeding their child, they're distracted by their cell phone or they're watching the TV at the same time. That's a distracted parent. Mm-hmm. An attuned, emotionally parent is going to be looking at that child while they're feeding them, maybe smiling them, maybe singing to them softly or just talking to them, encouraging them. So really being aware of what you do if you're multitasking. We all do it. Don't mm-hmm. don't feel bad about it, but just be mindful. If you're doing it all the time, you're distracted, your kids will pick up on that. So model that behavior to them early on in life. That can be very, very helpful. And you've probably heard me talk, Kathleen, a little bit about mentalization. Mm-hmm. Sometimes referred to as like theory of mind, but mentalization is basically our ability to understand the internal mental states of other people, like the needs, emotions, beliefs, intentions, those kind of things. If you infuse mentalization into parenting practices that has been shown to promote children's attachment security, and it's also been shown to help promote and model emotional understanding, emotional knowledge, and emotional talk to that child. So you're helping that child learn words to help them name their emotions as they get older. And that is really important for helping to learn better self-control and self-regulation. Another term you want to be aware of is something called mind-mindedness. That is an attachment-based construct and it's rooted in maternal sensitivity and mother-child attachment security. And it also plays a role in the development of theory of mind, which is perspective taking. Some other things that are often talked about that can really promote attachment, but also brain and body development, art. Mm -hmm. Getting kids involved in doing artwork or just arts and crafts because art and child development literature really shows that it can really promote language development, creativity, It can help that child develop more fine motor skills. It's been shown to help promote positive mental health. Parents that just read to their child too as they grow up, look at the literature on reading to the child. That's been shown to promote brain development. It helps promote parent-child attachment because you're attuned with that child. You're sitting there, just the two of you. Mm -hmm. That helps that child get ready for school It helps them develop vocabulary, reading comprehension. So reading to your child consistently can be very, very helpful. Being around animals has been shown to be very helpful. For some of these kids with these special needs, they may do quite well with maybe working with like an animal-assisted therapist or intervention person. But just having an animal in your house, like a a dog or something Mm -hmm. like that, that's been linked to all kinds of positive things including teaching that child positive attachment, 
and having empathy for something else and teaching that child responsibility. If they have like a chore of like filling up the dog's water dish every day, that's teaching them how to help another kind of situation and grow kind of just in that mentality as well. Right. For, for some of you too, maybe you're working with a play therapist. That could be helpful, especially if some of these kids that have a lot of these special needs. So play therapists, play therapy interventions have been shown to enhance empathy. It's been shown to increase resilience. There's plenty of literature that shows play therapy is a great intervention to help enhance social skills, relationship building, and attachment patterns, to name a few. And incur- I encourage folks too, if possible, have meals together. Mm, Sit yeah. down and have, I mean, look at some of the research on the benefits of shared family meal time. That can also promote attachment and connectedness and empathy. Kids that never eat with their parents and they're on their own have worse outcomes than kids who typically have sit-down meals with family on a consistent basis. And that means putting your gadgets away, too. Yes. Because if everyone's <laughs> sitting at the dinner table and they're on their phones, that defeats the purpose. So Yes, I agree. And that's one of the things that, you know, I, we always did with our kids and, and now our grandkids is, we all we sit down at the table and we choose a topic of conversation and sometimes it's funny topics like make up a story about your day like about dragons or you ran into a lion and sometimes they're serious but everybody has to put their phone away and participate in the conversation and it's always hilarious when we have company over because my kids even though they're grown, insists that we still do that. And so the visitors are just kind of thrown off guard. You mean I have to do this? Yes, you have to do this. <laughs> you have to participate in the topic of conversation. But all of those... That's awesome. That's great. All of those things that you're talking about, it's like, you know what? And I tell parents this all the time. It's so simple. And I had one adoptive mom say, when you said this to me, it literally changed my relationship with my kids because all I told her was she had three little boys they had just adopted and she was really struggling and they were really struggling. And I said, are you playing with them? And she said, what? And I said, well, get down on the floor and play with them with the trucks and the Legos. And what? And she said that changed everything. That without a doubt, without a doubt, playful engagement. I encourage your audience to Google that. It's called playful engagement. Mm. Yeah, it makes a difference. It's just you know, really, it's just kind of old-fashioned what we did before we had cell phones and computers. We put together, and we still do this in my family. We put together puzzles and play games and play with play-doh and all of those things that kids need for their brain development. And they need to learn how to practice social skills. They can start at home and literally it costs you no money at all. All you have to do is work with what you have, you know. And it's life changing because that is an intervention to mm-hmm. use to promote attachment. It's right. Without a doubt. Yeah, it, it helps. Definitely. It's common sense, but not a lot of people do that anymore. So that's um, that's awesome that you do that. Yeah, it is common yeah. sense. And it. it People don't do it anymore because we all have these devices 
And for some reason, it's so important to scroll on Instagram. And, you know, you know, and I'm not, you know, I'm not judging anybody. I've been guilty of that myself. But we just need to put those down and remember our kids are only small for a certain period of time. And that is our job to help them to grow that attachment to spend time with them, to play with them, to teach them how to have a conversation at the dinner table, all of those things. And it's almost a lost art, too. When you said play therapy, I was thinking about this little place that opened where we lived um, before, and they it was a play therapy studio, and it was pretty cool. And I stopped in to give some brochures to her, and I was thinking about, you know, when play therapy started in the 1970s, and like now it's a big thing again because we're not doing the work that we're supposed to be doing or our kids have come to us through foster care or adoption and they've already had all this trauma and they need that extra help. But it's it's so important. Play is so important for kids. I'm glad that you brought that up because it is absolutely on so many levels. Well, as, as we wrap up with the interventions, I would leave your audience with just the takeaways. If you start infusing attachment-based approaches into the parenting work you do, and you're probably all doing this, but love, hmm. empathy, compassion, having guidance to that child, not hovering, but providing oversight and guidance. Mm -hmm. being sensitive to that child's needs and as they get older, having appropriate boundaries, having appropriate expectations, being aware of really avoiding harsh parenting practices, trying not to have inconsistent parenting practices. None of us are perfect. Mm -hmm. You can infuse this into one-on-one approaches you can infuse it into group activities. So groups, maybe you get some other parents together and some kids and you have a Saturday afternoon arts and crafts group and you put, you just sit and talk and laugh and spend time together. Mm-hmm. Play, scheduling play, getting outside. These kind of things can help be helpful. And all of these are really a component of supporting healthy social emotional development in that child and at the core of this obviously is going to be fostering good attachment patterns but then if you build on that you're teaching that child how to develop skills that they can use in relationships with others you're modeling and coaching and teaching them how to communicate effectively and name and label their emotions you're setting them up for success as they get into a K through 12 environment. You're teaching them how to handle emotions too, because life is not perfect. There's going to be a lot of struggles coming that child's way as mm-hmm. they get older, especially if they deal with special needs. So teaching them how to manage their emotions when things don't go well. You're teaching them friendship making abilities. You're teaching them you're modeling empathy, you're developing moral reasoning and understanding right and wrong in that child. And all the things that we talked about in these other podcasts we've done, just common sense things, getting good sleep, eating healthy, being around positive people, 
getting appropriate movement and exercise, keeping screen time to a minimum if possible, on going to the doctor, routine checkups, taking care of dental health, all mm-hmm. of these things can be very helpful in promoting brain and body development early on in life. And then obviously these will have significant positive implications, hopefully for that child throughout his or her lifespan. Well, and I just want to add from a parent's perspective, because if you're a parent and you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, all of those things don't exist in my area, like getting together for an art lesson or whatever, just do it. Because that's one of the things that I have been adamant about in my life. If there's something that doesn't exist and I think that my kids need it, then I do it myself. And that's just taking that power that you have and creating a social environment for your kiddos that they need for their betterment. Like have an art class or have a coffee at your house and invite moms and sit down and have a topic of conversation. That's one of the things that that I did when my kids were growing up and I belong to a play group. And if there's not one around your area, then... It's okay if you start one yourself, you know? It's okay. You're allowed to do that. It, you, Whatever your family needs, you can begin to create that if it doesn't exist around you. So I just wanted to put that out there because I know people, some people live in areas where these things are not available. So any last advice before we finish up here, Dr. Jerry? And it, well, yeah, just to piggyback off what you said, but use technology to your benefit as well because mm-hmm. I know several people that have been in situations like that where maybe there's not a group around your area, so they found an online support group and they were able to do something online. I, I've consulted on cases too where people have done like exercise groups online or social groups, so there's a lot of things you can do with technology as well for the benefit. Right, I agree. There are positives about technology. So thank you for joining us again today, Dr. Jared. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. You're welcome, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to Trauma-Informed Parenting. Make sure you subscribe on traumainformedparenting.com to receive a free resource and receive a newsletter plus updates when books or new courses are released. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Podomatic, or Spotify and leave a review so other listeners can find trauma-informed parenting and know the value of the show. You're welcome to send me an email to contact at traumainformedparenting.com.